This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. As the climate unravels before our eyes, this show is packed with lead authors and new revelations. Saeed Waldiab, in a climate not much warmer than today and ice sheets melting, long frozen methane on the seafloor, was released. Can it happen again? Then Michelle Dvorak's team finds Earth will cross that 1.5-degree warning line before 2030, and probably 2 degrees C in the 2050s. Finally, Kevin Rennert, a new study reveals America underestimates the climate damage and undervalues climate action, all coming right up in Radio EcoShock. Our first guest did not attend school to learn reading or writing until age 13. Now he has a warning from the past, published in the top scientific journal in the world. Stay tuned for the full story. Buried in the ocean floor is a climate trap. Huge volumes of the superwarming gas methane are frozen inside cages of ice. They are called clathrates. If that methane thaws and gets into the atmosphere, it's possible a major civilization-ending warming could result. Some respected scientists doubt that could happen this century or even this millennium, but new science suggests a past release happened in a warming similar to today. The new paper was published August 22nd in the Proceedings of the National Academy. The title is Evidence for Massive Methane Hydrate Destabilization During the Penultimate Interglacial Warming. We have reached the lead author. Dr. Saeed Waldiab is Associate Professor of Paleoclimatology at the University of California. From California, Saeed Waldiab, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, Alex. Thank you very much. Well, your paper got a lot of coverage. Let's start here. To understand this ancient methane warming, we need to set the stage. Tell us about what the climate was like around 125,000 years ago. The, the climate around that time, the Emean, so basically the peak uh, Emean warming, it was warmer between 1 and 2 degrees as compared to today. The sea level was higher on between 3 and 5 meters compared to today. So this is for us very interesting because it provides us basically a window into climatic processes that may be useful to understand the ongoing and future climate warming because uh, there are something you know, happening right now, but there are also climatic feedback processes that will come later, and by looking, going back in time uh, in a similar condition where we are heading uh, and learning this climate warming, climate feedback processes, it's crucial. So the choice of this time window was intentionally because it is, even though the, the, the cause for the warming at that time was different, but the climatic feedback processes, this is what we can learn from. So this gives us basically a, a paleo analog or paleo perspective, what we can learn from that time window for this ongoing climate warming. And this is an, uh, probably a imperfect analog, but still it provides us valuable information about processes that can happen in a warming climate now or in 100 years. 
And your paper suggests the key driver for this ancient warming event uh, that that may have melted the the clathrates was a current of meltwater arriving from collapsing ice sheets somewhere. I looked it up. The southern polar ice sheet melted around 125,000 years ago. That was discovered by the glacial geologist Anders Carlson. But your team suggests a different source for the meltwater that appeared off the coast of Africa. Where did it come from? I think first we have to make clear that the warming driven by change in solar insulation was the key. And then that warming drove basically, among others, the melting, uh, you know, on the southern hemisphere, what you mentioned, but also the melting of Greenland ice sheet, the Arctic. We have to be clear, the melting of Greenland ice sheet and the associated meltwater input into the North Atlantic is a response to the warming, right? It's part of this. And then we have this huge meltwater. Imagine meltwater from ice is zero salinity, right? It's low density. And if you put low density water into critical region of a subpolar North Atlantic, you are basically perturbing the density-driven ocean circulation. So what we see is basically the warming induced increased ice melting in the north, increased meltwater into the North Atlantic, and this meltwater, low density, basically perturbed the ocean circulation at our site, which is the Quarter Atlantic, at water that's between 5 and 1,200 meters below surface, basically start then this area from cold water. So the warming we observe in our region is basically a composite of two processes. If you warm the climate, heat basically diffuses from the atmosphere through the surface, one. And the other is if you perturb the ocean circulation, so basically in our case, the, cold, the advection of cold water from the high latitude was basically dramatically reduced. Those two processes combined led them to exceptionally strong warming of intermediate water. This is basically waters at a depth between 500 and, say, for simplicity, 1,000 meters below the surface. So we have to make clear, basically, that the melting of the ashes and the meltwater input is part of the feedback processes that basically create further feedback processes or feedback loops. So, Saeed, most of the discussion of frozen methane on the seabed in recent years has pointed to the Arctic, especially on the bottom of the shallow East Siberian Sea. Why did you go to tropical West Africa to study clathrates? Well, my large part of my study is on world focused on how monsoon systems, right? The global monsoon system work, including the West African monsoon system. So I collected the score to get insight about the monsoon system. But when you have the material, unique material, valuable material, your research is not only constrained to this monsoon system, but you look also at other climatic processes. And you basically capitalize on this material you have so there are a lot of people who look, and, as you said, in the, in the um, Arctic region, but 
What happened in the Arctic region is also felt in the equatorial Atlantic. So what we are looking is basically teleconnections, right? And for example, high latitude, the Arctic, is warming much, much stronger than the average global warming, right? So, and that has an effect of the meltwater and other processes that find its way into tropical regions. So we are basically creating teleconnections and also feedback processes that communicate basically between the tropics and, and the northern high latitudes. We are interested in this larger picture, how are things connected, and then how is the climatic feedback loop basically amplifying and accelerating climatic processes that happen in the tropics, that happen in the northern high latitude. That's a great story. You went to study the monsoons in Africa. You dug up the tiny sea creatures called foraminifers and then expanded and said, well, what else can we tell from this and, and looked into the methane? Now, some scientists who doubt the clathrate risk say methane would not escape the sea to reach the atmosphere, so the risk of warming from that methane would be minimal. What do you say to that? I think science and the science community benefits greatly from healthy skepticism, right? So this skepticism push us then to work harder, to, you know, to expand our research, to strengthen our research. I think this as a healthy discussion that pushes basically the science to the edge, and, we, and that is a good thing. But at the same time, we, uh, as paleoclimatologists, we have to make sure that our colleague, you know, paleoclimate is a niche where we, uh, you know, where we use a method and techniques that are probably are very specific. And our, what I see is part of our job is also to communicate with our, with our colleagues who study current climate or future climate to explain them our methods, our approach, our climate archive, how we decipher fingerprints of past climate change and explain them, and the, that the current climate community or the modern climate community can benefit greatly by basically looking carefully at our findings and having, of course, this critical discussion. But we have also to work and explain our colleagues basically the robustness of our findings. This is how I see it. And was there a corresponding global warming in that period 125,000 years ago when methane might have been released? Uh, That is, do we have evidence that a clathrate release led to a heating world then? Uh, What we see here is at this time when we, in in our study, see um, methane hydrate destabilization and methane release across the water column, water column of 1,300 meters. So that has, has to be massive and also uh, sustained over a long time period to be pro- uh, documented in across the water column. And we looked at the atmospheric CO2 and atmospheric methane as measured in the ice cores. Indeed, we see a slight increase on, of CO2, atmospheric CO2, and the atmospheric methane. So 
basically coincident with the time we see this destabilization on the oceanic side. We see basically this an increase of methane, atmospheric methane, and atmospheric CO2. I have to add this. This increase can be caused by different processes. One contributing factor might be that what we uh, documented. But this is an uh, initial result, so we need to expand our study area, um, you know, into different regions to show uh, and to make clear that our finding is not limited to one site, like the uh, Eastern Equatorial Atlantic, but to other sites. When you have, you know, imagine, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. When uh, the methane makes its way into the atmosphere, it's going to basically contribute and accelerate and amplify the already existing warming. So, um, so getting it in the atmosphere, it is clearly going to have contributed to uh, the warming. So this is basically where kind of demonstrate actually how a climatic, a positive, positive climatic feedback process works, right? You warm the climate. The warm climate causes the ashy to melt. You get an increased melt water into the ocean. Melt water is low density. And this low density perturbs the ocean circulation, creating uh, warming the intermediate, intermediate water. And this warming of the intermediate water causes then the methane hydrate to get destabilized and then it makes way back to the, uh, to, the, to the atmosphere and then it basically contributes to warming. So once we, we, we get those methane and the CO2 to the atmosphere, it's going to contribute to the warming. So this is a, a, classic, a classic climatic feedback processes that can be learned only by looking at the past. If we can use models, you know, model projection, but this paleocomet perspective is very, very crucial, and we have to communicate this clearly to the general community, but also to the research, uh, to our research our colleagues that focus in current or future climate. So it's about communication. So, radio ecoshock. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is C. Waldiab, a scientist from the UC Santa Barbara Paleoclimate and Stable Isotope Lab. We're talking about evidence methane from the seabed could be released as the oceans warm, as it's happened in the past. So it's an amazing what you found that the sea, according to the samples that you brought up, may have warmed over 6 degrees C hotter. Now, that's a huge warming, and it happened not at the sea surface, but fairly far down below. How long do you think the methane release from these clathrates might have lasted? Just to clarify, the surface warming, uh, we observed it was like just 1 degree uh, or 1 and a half. So the, this extremely strong warming is observed in the intermediate water. So it's, it's not that the atmosphere or, or the surface water was warm by 6 degrees. Then the background, it is the intermediate water. And to answer your question about the duration, is we looked at carefully how long was you know, the fingerprint we reconstructed. Peak is about 500. It was, so we, we see basically 500 years of methane release, methane oxidation. 
across the water calm. It starts, you know, if we look at the beginning to the end, it's about 1,000 years. But when we look at this peak, uh, the maximum, it's about 500. Uh, and that means, basically, it's kind of important. If you have this kind of persistent, sustained destabilization, and that's why it's making across the water count and potentially to the atmosphere, and that is basically strongly contradicts to the ideas that exist. Well, um, the flare is not, um, you know, it's short term. It doesn't make the water calm. Uh, there are many, many arguments, but we provide here very strong case, very strong evidence that there is the possibility that strong warming, exceptionally strong warming on the inter- intermediate water, and, I mean, you know, when you have this warming, it's just a, a, phys- a physical reasoning, right? If the warming exceeds the stability field of methane hydrate, then methane hydrate is going to dissolve, right? And, and that's what we see. So I think we have basically to, to look at the records and at the strength of the evidence. The warming that you, what, what we are mentioning here, the warming of the intermediate water, we work carefully uh, to check it, and we use several independent proxies. So what does mean proxies is we cannot go back and measure the temperature of, you know, of the past, but we have chemical isotopic fingerprints with which we can reconstruct quantitatively temperatures or fingerprints of methane. So the, the, the evidence is relatively strong, but it's still, right, we are looking back in time, there are some, some degree of uncertainty in our approach, but we were carefully to kind of test and validate this using different approach. So the warming, this extremely strong warming, right, 6 degrees, 6.8 degrees more from the background, that happens not in the atmosphere, not in the surface, but into the intermediate water. And that is why we have to watch carefully how this region is basically evolving. Because if you look currently, the, the uh, ice sheet melting, uh, Greenland ice sheet melting is really accelerating. So what that means is the rate of melting is accelerating. So it's getting more and more and uh, more and more every year. And this meltwater is already noticed in some part of North Atlantic. We see the salinity is decreasing, and if you, you know, low, uh, lower salinity means lower density. So we already seen uh, processes that we, we saw in the past. You know, if we warm the climate, you increase the meltwater. The meltwater has to go somewhere into the ocean, uh, in part in critical region, and this going to... Uh, lower the density. And we already, there is a strong debate, you know, whether the ocean circulation is weakening. There are, there are indications, there are contraindications. So I think the process we are, what we're showing in the past is very, very valuable to the discussion what we have and also to the feedback processes we can, we can encounter in the future. See, tell us about your life journey to becoming a paleoclimatologist. I tell this occasionally to my students because my path is not the usual one. I was born in Eritrea, this is in East Africa, 
And because at the time we have this war, independence war, my parents decide to basically send me to my grandparents in rural Africa. In rural Africa is different than rural America or rural Canada or rural Australia, right? So I was their shepherd and uh, helping my grandparents with their, you know, they were pastoralists and, and had no opportunity to go to school and to read and write. So at 13, then my, my, you know, the extended family decided uh, I should go to Germany because the war was getting worse, worse, worse. And, they, and uh, that's at the time when I, then in Germany, I started to to read and, and write. So basically, I started very, very, very late. Um, but still, you can see that it's doable. It's never late, right? And never late. And I am here where I am. From UC California, we've been speaking with Associate Professor C. Waldiop. He is lead author of the new paper, Evidence for Massive Methane Hydrate Destabilization During the Penultimate Interglacial Warming. You can find it and read it for free in full text by searching that title, or you can use a link in my show blog at ecoshock.org. More breaking science and two more interviews coming right up. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You want to know the future climate. I know you do. Are we already committed to a hotter Earth? How much hotter? How soon? Will climate action matter? All these questions are approached in an important new paper. It has an unassuming title, Estimating the Timing of Geophysical Commitment to 1.5 and 2 degrees C of Global Warming. The lead author is Michelle T. Dvorak. Michelle is a research scientist from the University of Washington in Tacoma. Michelle Dvorak, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you. Happy to be here. Your paper says we will probably cross the 1.5 degree C threshold within this decade. That seems sooner than we expected. Would you tell us how you did your research so that we can know how you would arrive at the possibility we would cross 1.5 in this decade? So we took a simple climate model called FAIR, the Finite Amplitude Impulse Response Model, that we constrained to match observed warming so that we knew that the model was reliable. And we input emissions time series from a variety of realistic emissions pathways. And then we shut off those emissions in every year for the next 60 years along a median emissions pathway. And we modeled the temperature response following that cessation of emissions. It's interesting to me that there are very complex models where people try to put in every possibility, you know, the the flow of the air, the temperature of the sea, the whole thing. And then there are models that are fairly simple based on simple premises. But sometimes the simple models, when you run them backwards, do show the past quite accurately. So do you have confidence in the model that you used? At the core of a simple climate model, the one that we use, is essentially just a two-box representation of the atmosphere and surface ocean and then the deep ocean. And those are coupled together with a coefficient of heat exchange between the two. So it's really idealized. It's a one-dimensional climate system, and it's dependent upon certain climate variables like the magnitude of aerosols and the magnitude of greenhouse gas forcing in the atmosphere. 
and also earth sensitivity to CO2. So we allow each of these variables to change, to vary within distributions of what is considered the best available science. And as a result, we actually get quite a broad temperature spread. But then the key is that we then constrain that model. We only select model configurations that give us an accurate um, reproduction of both the trend in observed warming and also an ocean heat content change. And both of these are measured experimentally. In this way, we get that really good agreement with observed temperatures. And I think it's worth saying that we don't need fancy representations of atmospheric or oceanic circulations that are used in more complex global climate models to resolve temperatures. The basic physics of energy balance gets us pretty much most of the way to the right answer and also is a lot more flexible and computationally efficient. And one thing I appreciate in your new paper, which was published in Nature Climate Change, you don't just count carbon dioxide. What other warming gases did you consider? So we looked at um, a total of 39 gases and what are called forcing agents. We looked, for example, of course CO2 is considered, but we also consider methane and nitrous oxide, which are the other two primary greenhouse gases that warm the climate. Then there are greenhouse gases such as halogens and CFCs and HFCs, which are in much lower concentrations but also warm, serve to warm the climate. We look at ozone, um, but most importantly, we look at what are called aerosol precursors, which are sulfur dioxide, sulfur oxides, and nitrous oxides. And these create what are called aerosols, and these act to cool the climate. Right. I was really interested in that because this has been a debate for some time is how much is our pollution, so to speak, these aerosols, the little particles that go up into the atmosphere, how much is it cooling the earth? And there have been different estimates over time. What did your study find? So there's a lot of uncertainty in the magnitude of cooling from aerosols, from air pollution. The most recent estimates from the uh, IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, suggest uh, anything between 0.1 and 0.8 degrees of cooling over the industrial period could be due to aerosols. Our study uh, narrows this down a bit to, we have a median estimate of about 0.22 degrees of cooling, which is removed when you abruptly cease all emissions. Yeah, that's a problem that I sort of have in the paper. There are several references to abrupt cessation of emissions, and I can see that as sort of a scientific measurement, but unless we get hit by an asteroid or something wrecks the civilization, that seems really unlikely. Does your model also work for the possibility of a gradual decline of warming gases and aerosols, say, over many decades? Yes, it does. Because it is quite a fast model to run, we're able to do any number of simulations, thousands or even millions, and modeling a more gradual emissions reduction scenario was part of our study. Regardless, we do find that even though an abrupt cessation is unlikely, and it does lead to more rapid warming because you remove aerosols, we find that it is still the best case scenario in terms of avoided warming. Any uh, gradual cessation of emissions or a gradual ramping down of emissions that doesn't use net negative carbon capture methods 
would need to occur over about five years or less in order to avoid one and a half degrees of warming. Right, and the new paper works on a fascinating quirk of the future. You say the climate is committed to boundaries like 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees before actually reaching that warming. Could you please explain? Right, because we've co-emitted all of these aerosols alongside of these warming gases, it means that we have not yet experienced the full magnitude of warming from the greenhouse gases that we've already emitted. So by modeling this abrupt cessation scenario, we're able to exactly figure out how much warming our past emissions would have caused had we not obscured some of it with these aerosols. So we'll get a sort of temporary warming or overshoot when we do finally reach net zero. How long could that last? Well, we find that a shut-off of emissions in 2021 leads to an overshoot that lasts approximately 18 years before temperatures come back down to the present day. So it's a fairly significant peak in warming. Right, and I think on some pathways you found the overshoot could last even up to 48 years. That's correct. We did find that. That's a long time. And, you know, during that hotter than final temperature, if we want to call it that, it seems to me feedbacks and irreversible damage to species could happen even if Earth then cools a few tenths of a degree. What are your thoughts? I completely agree. I think that even though that this phenomenon of peak warming can kind of be brushed under the rug in some cases if, if we choose to think about long-term warming, it's definitely relevant to ecosystems and parts of the climate system that respond on these timescales of decades. Sea ice being one of them, so if you have sustained warming of maybe one and a half degrees, I'm not precisely sure what the science is saying on that, but if you have sustained warming for several decades, you would expect a seasonally ice-free Arctic, which would have profound ramifications for ice-obligate marine species, polar bears. Yeah, so I think that it's important not to overlook what kind of effects that warming would have on these ecosystems. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith, and our guest is Michelle Dvorak from the University of Washington. We're talking about some new science. So just to be clear for listeners, what your paper finds is that we will have peak warming, and then we will have final warming, so to speak, a more stabilized temperature. And so we've just been talking about the peak warming that could last from 11 to 48 years or for a period of time before it cools down. And my thoughts about that, too, are, are, are that humans are not very patient and we're doubtful. So people may get disappointed if temperatures keep on getting hotter after making sacrifices to get off fossil fuels. Right. Even if it's rapid temperature change that isn't meant to last a long time, I think if we're seeing year after year, you know, one and a half degrees of warming despite a lot of efforts, then, yeah, you're right. I think that would probably disturb a lot of people, which is probably why it's important for us to understand the, the full magnitude of, of our past emissions. Various studies and institutions have set two degrees C of warming as a boundary humans must avoid. According to the work of your paper, even with modern emissions, when would Earth be committed to two degrees of warming? 
So we find that we would com- be committed to peak warming of 2 degrees by 2057 with 66% confidence. Wow, that's within the lifetimes of most of our listeners. So in 2022, we are far from moderate emissions. In fact, coal plants are increasing and economic growth is still based on fossil fuels. That's the model. How did you calculate how soon Earth crosses that warming point? Did you include also cases with the worst-case scenario, our our current pathway? We did. We we included – we didn't include our – actual emissions from 2016 onward because we were using modeled emission scenarios. But you're right in saying that we are following something more like maybe a higher emission scenario such as SSP3, um, whereas our middle-of-the-road scenario was looking at SSP2. So we modeled cessation of emissions in every year following all of these emission scenarios. For one and a half degrees, that temperature threshold, um, our estimates of when that will be crossed don't really change because it's so soon, and the emissions pathways don't diverge that much until around the 2030s. But certainly our two-degree estimate is smaller if we consider a higher emission scenario, or I should say we cross it sooner. Along with new science from Michael Mann and Kevin Trenberth and others, your team assumes Earth temperatures will stabilize at whatever point we reach, like when net zero emissions finally happen. But in the end, uh, your paper says the model does not include some major destabilizing possibilities. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, you're right. So we assume a constant feedback parameter. So that that means that we assume that the Earth's response to its warming response to CO2 emissions is constant with time and with emissions. But there's a lot of research that suggests that that feedback will change over time with continued warming. And most of the research points to um, what you say, destabilizing feedbacks. So feedbacks that would lead to more warming. So given that our study doesn't capture um, those climate feedbacks, we would expect that these estimates would only become underestimates as the climate continues to warm. And I suppose in the good news department, you find we're not already committed to dangerous warming by past emissions. I find that surprising. How is that possible? Well, we're not committed to long-term warming, dangerous levels of long-term warming. The optimistic message here is that by considering all emissions, we also consider those other greenhouse gases, primarily methane and nitrous oxides. Given that those are much shorter lived than CO2, one would expect that when we stop all of those emissions and those are removed from the atmosphere, and then we can observe quite a bit more cooling than we would otherwise if we only removed CO2 or only stopped emitting CO2. So that's the optimistic message is that if we consider end-of-century warming, then we're not committed to two degrees of warming in this century. The Northern Hemisphere just went through a bruising summer of extreme heat around the world, followed by record-breaking storms in some places. But we're still in the very early stages of climate change. And I think one of the big questions is about equilibrium climate sensitivity. Could you explain why that, what it is and, and why that matters in any scientific work? That's a good question. Um, Equilibrium climate sensitivity 
refers to the magnitude of temperature change that would follow a doubling of CO2. So that temperature response depends strongly on that feedback parameter that I mentioned before, which could change over time. So we could find that, and research does suggest that we are living right now in a lower climate sensitivity state than we might expect in the following centuries. And that's an active area of research. We're trying to narrow that uncertainty in climate sensitivity and figure out uh, how much it might change in the future. So the climate might become more sensitive to emissions as we go along. That's correct. Wow, that's worth knowing. According to Table 2 of this paper, to have 66% confidence in staying at or below 1.5 degrees C in long-term warming, the carbon budget leaves 340 gigatons left to burn. So right now we're emitting about 36 gigatons of carbon a year. Basically, in the back-of-envelope calculations, that means we only have 10 years to get off fossil fuels. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's just about right. And it's definitely less time and less carbon than, uh, than previous research has suggested, but I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if I got this right, but it seemed like your paper suggests humans will not warm the planet above 2 degrees C, even if we take until 2080 to reach net zero emissions. Did I get that right? Well, I think the difference there is that it is, if you are thinking about this peak in warming that follows the cessation of emissions, or if you're considering longer-term kind of pseudo-equilibrium end-of-century warming, that 340 gigatons carbon dioxide, that estimate is for peak warming of 2 degrees. That means that if in 20 years, 20 years from now, we abruptly cease all emissions, we would expect a 66% chance that temperatures would be above 2 degrees. But long-term, 2100 temperatures of, of 2 degrees, after the climate has had time to cool from that warming peak, uh, won't be reached until 2080. And what are you working on now? What's coming up for you? We are very interested in, like I said, um, estimating equilibrium climate sensitivity. One area of research is using past climate to help constrain the present-day estimate of climate sensitivity. So looking at time periods like the last glacial maximum, when um, we had ice sheets all over the northern hemisphere, but also even further back to the period called the Pliocene, when greenhouse gas concentrations were similar to today and temperatures were about three degrees warmer. So we are interested in looking at that time period in the climate and estimating the climate sensitivity during that time and seeing how similar or different it might be to present-day sensitivity. From the University of Washington, we've been speaking with research scientist Michelle Dvorak. She is lead author of the paper Estimating the Timing of Geophysical Commitment to 1.5 and 2 degrees C of Global Warming. You can get more links and leads in my show blog at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith reporting. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. An American press release announces the real cost of carbon emissions is three times the current U.S. government estimate. Not very shocking. So who cares? What is the real damage for every ton of carbon added? 
Can anyone calculate that in a future holding so much uncertainty? How do we work on climate action in the real world as it is now? Let's find out. A new study on the social cost of carbon was published in the top journal Nature September 1, 2022. The title is Comprehensive Evidence Implies a Higher Social Cost of CO2. We reached the lead author, Dr. Kevin Rennert. With a doctorate in atmospheric science, Kevin worked in senior roles at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as advisor on energy for the Senate Finance Committee. He is a fellow and director with the group Resources for the Future, which was founded back in 1952. From Washington, D.C., Kevin Rennert, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Is the price of carbon a hypothetical waiting for a future, or how does the U.S. government use the carbon price? So the federal government for the last, well, for for several decades, um, has been required to do what's referred to as benefit-cost analysis for or regulatory impact analysis for major regulations that it undertakes. That's been going on since the Reagan administration. And in the last decade or so, an additional piece of that has been added in saying that in addition to all the other benefits you are attempting to quantify, uh, you should also uh, analyze and assess the benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So the Obama administration um, moved forward with providing a harmonized number across the U.S. government um, for use in this benefit-cost analysis, and they updated it um, over President Obama's eight years or so. And that's actually the origin of the $51 per ton that the federal government is using right now in its analysis uh, under the Biden administration. It was generated by this interagency working group uh, that had its origins in President Obama's administration. How does the study define the social cost of carbon? Yeah, the social cost of carbon is a dollar estimate of the damage to society resulting from an additional ton of carbon dioxide emissions released into the atmosphere. We talk about carbon dioxide in the study, but there are analogous metrics for methane, for nitrous oxide, and you can also come up with similar metrics for things like HFCs. You can effectively do this process for any greenhouse gas um, by changing out the greenhouse gas that is, uh, is used in the climate model. In our interviews, most climate scientists calculate the cost of carbon in terms of degrees of raising the global average temperature and then secondarily things like rising seas. So your study tries to measure the economic cost or is it broader than that uh, into social costs? It's, it's really the social cost. And this is a very important piece of what the social cost of carbon provides for the federal government and for other decision makers that are thinking about um, analysis and trying to take into account their effects of their policy decisions on greenhouse gas emissions. Most of those decisions um, are put in a framework of dollars and cents. Um, and so having um, you know, costs on one side, which are in dollars, but not having benefits from climate also in dollars is a little problematic in terms of that broader framework. So the social cost of carbon attempts to to rectify that by putting the effects of climate change into dollar terms. And so in the study that uh, that we're talking about today, um, we are quantifying benefits from reducing emissions or damages from uh, from increasing emissions for four major categories. Um, Those related to temperature-related mortality, uh, increased risk of people dying as a result of temperature change, also for changes in agriculture, as well as effects on energy consumption and also on coastal impacts. 
But we do have a very uncertain future. We don't know what the stock market's going to do, what the international economy is going to do. There's there's a war going on, a pandemic, and uh, then we have climate change, which is – we just saw what happened in California. It was terrible, terrible heat. So what improved tools could you bring to the table to estimate the social cost of carbon in that kind of uncertainty? That's right. This is a very uncertain world we're living in, and that's an uncertain world that we are heading into. And also, many of the parameters that lead to this social cost of carbon estimate are themselves uncertain um, in terms of the climate system parameters, you know, where our society is heading in terms of economic growth, the population, and so on and so forth. There's uncertainty throughout this process. And so when the National Academy of Sciences um, was asked by the federal government to look at this problem and how the federal government's process could be improved, one of their key recommendations was that you should quantify that uncertainty um, as well as possible throughout the entire social cost of carbon estimation chain. So that's really what we've, um, we've done within this study is we're providing a central estimate for the social cost of carbon of $185 per ton, but that estimate reflects a huge distribution of model runs where we have sampled across all of those different uncertainties to really get a sense of how those uncertainties compound from you know, the future economic growth and population and emissions to the climate model and so on. So that in the end, the number that you get is actually indicative and tells you something about that range of uncertainty as well. Why did you add in population expectations as a factor for the cost of carbon? Well, it's, it's critical if you're going to think about things like temperature-related mortality, that you would want to know uh, what the future population might look like. And so we partnered with, uh, with some researchers at the University of Washington, uh, Adrian Raftery and Hannah Shevchikova, that are the statisticians behind the United Nations official population projections. And they actually took their, their work and they extended it even deeper into the future um, to account for the fact that to think about carbon, you need to be thinking beyond you know, the next 50 or 100 years. You need to be thinking you know, even beyond that. So they came up with, uh, with a range, effectively, of potential futures um, and in an entire distribution of those potential population futures that have population peaking sort of mid-next century and then declining in the median, but also with a huge range of uncertainty where you could end up, you know, um, in a few hundred years with a population that's, you know, on the order of 30 million or 30 billion, rather, or a population that is, you know, lower, that is potentially as low as maybe 3 billion. And sampling across that entire range is critical to estimating the social cost of carbon because you want to think about climate change in all of those different worlds uh, because the effects will be different depending on, on how those worlds look. So another task for your group was to monetize climate damages, to map out what the real costs could be. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So we drew from four different studies, um, that all of which had been peer-reviewed in the scientific literature. One study was carried out uh, with, uh, with Kevin Cromar um, from New York University as a lead author in conjunction with about 24 other public health experts. Um, and they looked through the literature, through about 36 studies or so, that looked at the effects of temperature on uh, human mortality. And so they, they did what's called a meta-analysis, where they looked across all of those different studies and came up with effectively a, a damage function that translates changes in uh, temperature to changes in mortality at a regional level. So that's one, um, one piece of that. Another piece is work that was carried out by Fran Moore and her co-authors, which looked at uh, changes in agriculture. The way that they carried this out is to, again, look at many, many different studies um, that were looking at the changes in actual agricultural yield, uh, so the changes in the crops themselves for four different important crops to the world's food intake. 
And after they did that, they also incorporated the effects of trade. So when they thought about the overall economic effects, it's this combination for any given region of what happens with the crop itself in terms of its yields, but also what happens in terms of trade that ends up being the economic effect on a given region. For looking at uh, changes in energy consumption for residential and commercial businesses, we looked at uh, a study that was led by Leon Clark, where they used a, a model referred to as GCAM to assess the effects of changes in temperature on, on the amount of energy and the energy expenditures in those two different sectors, uh, kind of the commercial sector and also in the residential sector. And they found that, again, there is this, uh, this balance between um, you know, the fact that you are spending less money on heating because you have um, you know, fewer cold days, um, but you're spending potentially more energy or more money on cooling because of you know, greater uh, increase in, in hot days. And when you look at all that on balance, um, you see that there is, is a small net effect of climate change being an increase in energy expenditures. The final piece is looking at coastal impacts. Delray and Diaz uh, and Tony Wong each led studies uh, based on the same kind of underlying premise that were looking at individual segments along coastlines and trying to identify the different actions that uh, that's kind of coastal actors might take um, in response to changing sea levels and, and looking at the damages as they decide to either, um, you know, retreat or adapt or, you know, build seawalls and so on and so forth. A final piece of the puzzle is foreign to most of us. It's called discounting. I know this isn't your specialty, but what's your understanding of what discounting is and what does that have to do with the price of carbon? Certainly. So if you think about when we emit a ton of greenhouse gas emissions, and particularly carbon dioxide, it stays in the atmosphere a very long time. And that means that the damages that are caused by that ton of greenhouse gas emissions also continue over a, a long period of time. So to calculate the social cost of carbon, what you need to do is to basically calculate up, sum up into the future, you know, that stream of damages moving out from, you know, when you emit the pulse of greenhouse gas emissions until some point in the future, and then bring that sum back into net present value terms. So to do that, to bring these future damages into net present value terms, you need to actually decide how much you value future damages or future effects. This is a, a concept that's pretty you know, familiar to you. If, if I said to you, Alex, I will either give you a dollar now or a dollar in a year. And I said, which would you prefer? You would probably say, I would rather have the dollar now for a variety of reasons. And if I said, how much would you require me to give you in a year for you to say, yes, I'll take that change as equivalent. And you might say, maybe I need a dollar three or something like that. That tells us something about how you value you know, money in the future, because it's telling me that you value that money less and you value it less by about 3%. So this is now finally getting to the heart of economic discounting is there is a, um, a rate at which you assign to say this is exactly how much you value future, future benefits, future damages, um, and so on. That means that depending on what that discount rate is, if it is a high discount rate, it means that you actually don't value things that are happening in the future very much. So something that happens uh, with a high discount rate, damages that happen in 50 years, even if you know, they're present in the model, you might just not value them very much. They are effectively discounted away. However, if you have a very low discount rate, that would say that future damages matter to you basically just as much as damages happening today. And in that case, those future damages that are happening in 50 years, 100 years, and so on um, will actually matter a lot to this calculation of the social cost of carbon. 
In our analysis, what we find is that instead of using the federal government's current discount rate of 3%, which is the one that they have used now since 2003, if you use their exact same methodology by which they came to this conclusion of 3% they use for discounting today, and you just use more recent data, so you use the you know, most recent 30 years um, instead of you know, 30 years starting before 2003, you find that the, the current discount rate that's more relevant is closer to 2%. So when you think about that, if you lower the discount rate, that means that the future damages are going to be increased or are going to be valued further, and they contribute more to the overall estimate. You know, when I first read this study, I thought, okay, let's leave this discounting complication to the experts. But then we find out that the Trump administration just changed the discount rate and by that brought the alleged price of carbon down to $6 a ton, which is practically nothing. And that sends a big message to the fossil fuel companies and to all sorts of people. So it really does matter when you get down to it. It matters a tremendous amount. And we find that in this study as well. It's certainly not a secret that the, the level at which you set the discount rate is hugely influential in a social cost of carbon calculation. And so when, when we did this study, we you know, tried to bring everything into the current state of science and the current state of economics, including the discount rate. But we also looked at um, you know, what happens if you say don't change the discount rate. And in that case, you say you leave it at, at effectively a near-term discount rate of, of 3%. You still find that the social cost of carbon um, estimate goes up to $80 per ton instead of the current $51 per ton, even if you don't change that, uh, that discounting parameter. So there's, there's still a substantial um, increase in the social cost of carbon if you just update the rest of the piece of the science, even without that discounting piece. And when you bring the discounting into the equation, you also get a, a much bigger um, increase in the social cost of carbon. Another aspect of that problem and raised in your new study in Nature is the problem of long-term damages from pollution now, like going out hundreds of years into the future, as you mentioned. The grand story of the last few centuries has been growth, and today's politicians continue to promise growth. But limited natural resources and, and the way natural systems are reacting say that growth must end someday. Did your study consider a possible deceleration of the consumer economy? It did. And so one of the big contributions of this study is, in fact, the set of economic projections that we, we look at. To come up with projections for the social cost of carbon, you need to look at, again, not just 10 or 50 years. You really need to go out hundreds of years to be able to account for um, you know, the full damages that are, that are coming from these greenhouse gas emissions. And so to do that, you can't just use a regular economic model because they're not really designed for that. So we actually took a, a two-step process where we had a statistical model that was designed by a number of prominent economists that trained on the last 100 years of data and then provided a set of future projections that ran all the way out to the year 2300 based on that historical data. But because there's a lot that might be in the future that just isn't in the last 100 years, we actually wanted to bring in the kind of the actual expert judgment of a number of growth economists as well. And so we did a separate study, um, which involves surveying in a very formal manner, in a very quantified manner, the uh, opinions of another 10 growth experts and gave us effectively their ranges for what they think future economic growth might be. And then we use those two pieces together to come up with the overall projections of economic growth. 
Now, what was interesting about both of those studies is that they both indicated, the statistical model and the experts, that some very high growth possibilities are out there and also some very low growth possibilities. But the experts in general were much less optimistic than the model was about continued growth at a roughly 2% rate for the very long term. They actually brought that, that rate down you know, closer to 1% in the median um, with obviously a, a variation around that. And in fact, in the, the estimates themselves, um, we provide social cost of carbon values for multiple different years. And the way that you do that is by actually in the model, giving that pulse of greenhouse gas emissions that you're looking at, um, having that happen at different times in the future. And when you do that, that's important because that pulse is happening at a different time where the economic conditions might be different, where the climate state might be different, and so on and so forth. And so you actually need to run those, those models for those specific years in the future as well. That's in addition to the adjusting for inflation. So now we have a better documented, more realistic price for carbon. What are the next steps for the American government? So the American government, by executive order right now, um, on day one of President Biden's administration, came out with an executive order saying, federal government, you need to reinstate this interagency working group on the social cost of greenhouse gases. This is a, uh, a group of uh, top economists and scientists across the federal government. I think there are at least 11 different agencies that are involved in this to update the U.S. government's social cost of carbon and pay attention to these National Academy of Sciences recommendations for improving the science. So this interagency working group I know has been meeting um, and they've been discussing the updates to the science. I don't know exactly at what points they will come out with their findings, but hopefully it will, when they do, it will take into account uh, the science and the platform that we have put forward here um, in the study. Are you aware of any other governments who have already set such a high price for carbon, the social cost of carbon? The German government, the German equivalent of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, actually uses a higher social cost of carbon in, in its analysis. The Canadian government uses social cost of carbon, and uh, I expect we'll be updating its value in the coming years as well. So I think that there will be a lot of, uh, of work around the world on the social cost of carbon ends up taking note of and piggybacking a bit on the process that the United States runs for estimating the social cost of carbon, simply because it is so labor-intensive and there's so much that goes into actually updating these numbers that when somebody puts that kind of an effort behind it, the amount of scrutiny it goes through in terms of public comments and scientific review and so on, that often is something that, uh, that other governments look to um, to advise them in, in their own numbers. What is Resources for the Future? Resources for the Future is a nonpartisan economics think tank that is, is sort of reason for being is to inform natural resource and environmental decisions using nonpartisan fact-based analysis. We've got an audience of climate-aware, educated listeners. Do you have a final message or something you would like to tell them about this issue? Our study indicates that the federal government in the United States, anyway, um, has been effectively undercounting the damages from climate change in its own analysis and also undervaluing the benefits of the actions that it's been taking to address climate change. From Resources for the Future, we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Rennert. He is the lead author of the new paper, Comprehensive Evidence Implies a Higher Social Cost of CO2. You can read more about this in some blog postings at rff.org. That is all the time we have, packed to the minute. Tune in next week for more breaking climate news. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. 